Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. I just want to let you know that I'm going to sing that church when I or sing that song when I get to heaven. Amen. Amen. If we could have our children go off to children's church. Kelsey's got some great things for you there. Everyone excited about being the church today? Well, good, good, good. Matthew chapter 16, verses 18. We live in a time and in a place where we have a lot of uncertainties and a lot of situations that we're confused by and wondering what's going to happen and how is this, this going to work out. Turn to someone and say, how is this all going to work out? You guys sound like you're half asleep around here. Wow. Matthew 16, 18, I hope this gives you a little charge. Exactly. This is Jesus now. And he says, Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Jack Hayford had a great little commentary on this idea for us and us being the church and how powerful it is. How many of you know Jesus is building his church? Amen. How many know Jesus is building his church? Yeah. There we go, Deanna. You need all you help us here. God is building his church. And you know, we get into kind of all the other church building things. We get excited about buildings and walls and everything. And as exciting as those are, Jesus is interested in people. And if you're not interested in people... Today is a good day to start being interested in people. Amen. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. Jack Hayford wrote about the gates. The gates were the power centers of the city and the courts of a local government. When Jesus said that the gates of hell would not be able to stand against it, the verb implies ongoing action. Jesus was in effect saying that the evil administrations, the councils, the devices... The strategies of the adversary's hellish works against humankind would increasingly be impacted and crumble under the assault of Jesus Christ as his people would walk in the power of the cross. Applying the will of the Father here on earth, Jesus has given us the keys to penetrate those gates. The figure of speech gives us an understanding that the counsels or actions obstructing the will of God as a barricade and ensconced rule or government cannot stand. The rule of darkness must yield. Here's the neat thing. When you're a church, when we are the church, and we're inserted into a neighborhood, in particular, we're right here in this place. One thing that I love about this church is that while many churches kind of move out to suburbia, I love the fact that we're kind of right smack dab in the middle of the city. I love the fact of where we're at, where God has placed us. I love this zone. I love this geography. I love the people. I love the fact that we're right in the middle of a neighborhood. We have many opportunity. But to understand that and to understand that when God says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I want you to understand it doesn't mean that we go after Dungeons and Dragons and we go into the pit of hell and we terrorize the neighborhood that way. That's not what that's implying. In fact, the Bible really talks about us with our faith's warfare is that we're actually supposed to be standing. That's what we're supposed to do. What, what it's implying there is the very fact that when enemy comes in like a flood, there the Spirit of the Lord raises a standard against it. I want us to think about seeking the lost for a moment. Now many of us, when we think about seeking the lost, we think about pointing the finger and telling them how great of sinners they are, right? But we never see Jesus really doing that, do we? We see Jesus preaching repentance. That was his message out of the gate. But when we see Jesus, we see him healing the sick, saving the oppressed, doing good on earth. That's what Jesus did. Jesus did many things. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 1, let's turn there real quick. And as you're turning there, there was a funny news thing I saw, and maybe you saw it this week. There was a Petco thing that happened down in Texas. How many saw that guy brought his cow on a leash in Petco? Okay, that was the funniest thing to me. Yeah, big steer, right? It was like a big steer cow thing. It was a beast of a beast. If you didn't see it, I want you to type in Google. 
is. I forgot. Rod did that. So that was the beast. Okay? So here this guy in Texas walks into Petco. Now Petco's rule is this. Petco says if you have a pet on a leash, you can bring that pet into our building. So this guy in Texas decides that he's going to try it. And he's going to see what the response is. Now they have these doors that open like this and close like this. And you see this guy recording on a phone. And he's walking into the entrance. And he's going in there and he wants to see what pet code, if they'll truly live up to their plan that if you can, if you have a pet on a leash, you can bring it into the building. Amen. You know what the pet code's people response was? They loved it. <laughs> All the clerks came over, they were taking pictures with this big steer in Texas. I mean, if I would have saw that, I would have called in and said, I'm running out the back door. That would have scared me. But he obviously was a show, he was a show steer is what he was. But I think it's interesting when I think, you can go back to being a church, that way we don't get distracted, Hunter, but uh, 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 and 16. And I think we forget in church what we're supposed to do. I really do. I think we figure it out, and they're out there, they're wrong, and they need to get right because we're the right ones, and we need to, they would just fix it and everything would be great. In 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, we see a beautiful idea of Jesus Christ. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to what? Save sinners. And I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of His great patience with even the worst of sinners. And then others will realize that they too can believe in Him and receive eternal life. Amen. The greatest of patience. Christians to me, and I'm one of them, so this is me speaking to Steve. We are the most impatient people, aren't we? In many cases, we have the least compassion. In many cases, we are the most guilty of throwing stones at everyone else. And Paul, this great, he, he set up everything. The Apostle Paul. See, we romanticize Scripture so much. I was thinking about this week how we romanticize the Bible. Do you realize who Paul was? He murdered Christians. If Paul, it would have been like an ISIS terrorist coming in here because they're religious zealots too, by the way. Paul was a religious zealot. He thought he was doing God's work by killing these people. It'd be like an ISIS guy coming in here and plopping in our congregation and we had salvation that earth-shattering, life-shattering experience where he see, God speaks to him, blinds him, and has this wonderful experience. How many of you know as believers in that day, they would have been a little nervous having Paul in their congregation? Yeah. And so we romanticize scripture and we think, well, Paul, this great guy, Paul murdered people! And I think of that big steer cow. Whatever it is. I'm not, obviously, I'm not a farmer. <laughs> I think of that beast coming into that. And they said, we will accept anyone through these doors. And I have to ask myself, Lord, am I willing that anyone that wants to come through these doors, that we would be wanting them to be a part of our congregation, our fold, that, God, you came to seek and save that which is lost. Is turning point that. And I believe as we grow and we develop a compassion like a heart, like the Savior has Jesus Christ when He came on the world to seek that which was lost, I think we see a beautiful example. But I think more often than not, I think what ends up happening is we kind of take the angle like Jonah did. I really do. I'm on this Jonah kick right now. This book I'm reading on the spirit of Leviathan. Why don't you turn real quick to Jonah chapter 1. And let's see his attitude towards this lost world. Everyone say, oh Jonah. 
He's that good prophet, loving God, obeying all the rules. Jonah's a good man. Everyone say, Jonah's a good man. Jonah had an ugly heart. Sad ending for Jonah, actually. Jonah runs from the Lord. See, if we're going to seek the lost, if we're going to get radical about the lost, I'm going to really dice this up. I wish I would have looked this quote up. But Charles Spurgeon said, We in the church, if people are going to hell, we need to be those clawing and holding on to people, dragging them back to keep them away from hell. We need to be those who are praying and believing and loving and crying and saying, God, save them because Christ isn't coming back till everyone's been preached to and everyone's heard the gospel. That's when Jesus will return. Until everybody's had an opportunity. And we need to be those people who are filled with zeal for the lost like Christ was. He came to seek and save that which was lost. He didn't come to make us have nicer homes. He didn't come to give us a bunch of money. He didn't come. He came to seek and save that which was lost. Jonah 1, verses 1 through 6. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amity. Come, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went the opposite direction. To get away from the Lord. How many of you can't run from God? He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He He bought a ticket, went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break up the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. Isn't it interesting how these people were shouting to their god? And you didn't hear Jonah shouting to God, was he? But all the time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold. So the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this, he shouted. Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. The crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. And when they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. How many of you know even God will be glorified with these even men? God speaks even through donkeys. Remember that. Then the crew cast lots. I already read that. Why has this awful storm come down on us? They demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? And Jonah answered and said this, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. And the sailors were terrified when they heard this. For he had already told them he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do this? They groaned. And since the storm is getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should you do to stop this storm? He said, throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to land. But the storm sea was too violent for them and they couldn't make it. And then they cried out to the Lord. Jonah's God, oh Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin. And don't hold us responsible for that. Oh Lord, you have sent the storm upon him for your own good reason. Then the sailors picked Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea. And the storm stopped at once. I think what happens in the church over time is us saints, we start to fall asleep. We get into the slumber idea that I can't wait for heaven. How many know heaven's going to be a great place? But how many know if you're alive here on earth, you've got a ton of work left to do? And Jonah falls into a slumber, a slumber of disobedience. You know, when you get into a disobedient spirit and you have that rebellious spirit about you and you start running from God, how many of you go, God really goes after those people even harder? We can run from God. David declared, I can go to the deepest parts of Sheol. I can go to the deepest parts and you're there. I can go to the deepest parts of furthest away from you. God, you're there. We can't run from God. But the church in many ways is running away from the world. And where God is calling us and we find ourselves asleep waiting for all the problems of life to just simply go away. I think we, like Jonah, 
We get in our little boats and we say, I'm going to go the opposite direction. How many of you know you're going to places that you don't like and you don't feel comfortable with? And you kind of avoid those places. Kind of go in those places. I think that one of the things that we've got to start to do if we're going to get a heart of compassion again, especially for our city. Rockford's my city, so I take Rockford very personal. But if we're going to get compassion for it again, we're going to have to start blessing this city again. Turn to someone and say, you need to be a blessing. What was God's heart for this lost, sin-filled world? Turn real quick to Luke chapter 19. Actually, hold your thumb on Jonah. Actually, let's go to Jonah 4. Let's go to Jonah 4 first. Jonah's bad now at God's mercy. You don't have to raise your hand to this, but how many wish people would have got more of what they thought they, you thought they deserved? And they didn't get it, and you're mad because they didn't get it. We turn around, man, I wish they would just get it. Just get, get them. They get what they deserve. Boy, that's Jesus, isn't it? Jonah is angry at God's mercy. In Jonah 4, verse 10, it says, Then the Lord said, You feel sorry about the plant you thought did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and it died. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Backing up to verse 2. So we complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away from Tarshish. I knew that you are merciful and a compassionate God. You're slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive. What I predicted will not happen. Wow. What a sad state Jonah's gotten into where he said, Lord, take me now. Just kill me. I hate these people. They were wicked people, no doubt. They did horrible things. But he got so filled with bitterness and rage towards the wicked people that he didn't even want God's compassion to be touching them and in their hearts. Luke chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. Let's go to the New Testament as well. Because remember, everyone thinks the God of the Old Testament is somehow different than the God of the New Testament. That's the same God. Like he's got split personalities or something. Luke 19, 9 through 10. Remember Zacchaeus, one of my favorite stories. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He sat up in the sycamore tree and the Lord he wanted to see. And that's a beautiful part. Zacchaeus is a tax collector, a sinner. They hated it. Jesus said, Zacchaeus, I am going to your house today. Luke 10, or, or, or Luke 19, verses 9 through 10. He said, Salvation has come to the home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. It's pretty amazing. When you look back down through there and you actually read that story, you understand that the people were upset because Jesus was showing compassion towards this tax collector and this sinner. God interrupts our lives. Turn to someone and say, God's going to interrupt you. We pray for God's blessing. We pray for God's protection. We pray for God's provision. But I think it's safe to assume that we rarely pray for God to simply interrupt our life. I think it's very safe that we can say, well, God, I've got it all together. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm going after this. But the minute that God throws an interruption in us and he throws something at us that causes us to stop in our tracks, that's a point where we say, God, why are you doing this? How many have been through areas and seasons in your life where you just feel completely interrupted? It's from the Lord, maybe. Maybe that storm that hits your life right now, it's not an accident. And I believe God uses interruptions in our life for us to get completely focused on Him. In fact, many times right now for me, the season for me is, God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are upon you. I don't know what to do, God. You're interrupting things. You're interrupting patterns in my life. 
And God, what are you trying to speak to me? Mark Sayers writes this. The idea that God would interrupt our agenda, our will, and seemingly trample upon our rights by asking us to do something, anything, is deeply troubling to the contemporary person. It is an intrusion to our autonomy. When God asks us to do something that endangers our social status, it is equally as upsetting. Just as Jonah wasn't interested in touching Nineveh, often we excuse ourselves from doing the hard things that God may ask of us. I want to challenge you this week, and maybe hearing these words and hearing this voice, that God might be, and maybe he already has been, asking you to do some hard things. Serving the Lord is not easy. And Jonah's task was a very difficult task, because here's what Jonah was going to face. We're not going to go through the whole story today, but when Jonah got back on the land, Jonah's word to the whole city of 120,000 people was this. God is going to destroy this city. Boy, isn't that an exciting one. He didn't offer a guarantee. He didn't say anything other than God is going to destroy this city. Often we excuse ourselves. Here we are. That's nice. (laughs) Often we excuse ourselves from doing the hard things that God may ask us. Mark Sayer goes on to write... If we obey God, we must disobey ourselves. You think about that for a moment, our flesh and the war of the flesh with the spirit. How many know your greatest battles are with yourself? God, what am I going to do with this person here? I don't like this person. I don't like how they look. I don't like what they're doing. I don't like their perceptions on life. I don't like their ideology. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all doesn't matter one bit what your opinion of that person is. You know that? It doesn't matter if you don't like them. It doesn't matter if you like them. It doesn't matter if you have things in common. Because we get into this evangelism kind of stuff, and I hope this ruffles feathers today. We get into this idea of evangelism of kind of talking to like-minded people that we kind of get along with. That's not what evangelism is. In fact, the Lord would have declared through Scripture, Paul declared to become all things to all people. To go so far in your life to say, God, I'm going to change some things up on me. I'm not talking about you compromising your, 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 the truth that God has placed in you about the word of God and salvation. We're not talking about those concepts. I am talking about the things, the pet peeves that we don't like about people. Mark Sayers said it again, and I love it. Maybe write it down. If we obey God, we must disobey ourselves. Luke 9.23 This is a difficult task for us because doing the things of God is difficult and He'll call things out of us. Then He said in the crowd, If any one of you wants to be My follower, you must turn from your selfish ways And take up your cross and follow me. That's the reality. Christianity isn't about you kind of finding a feel-good place with God. I'm in a good place. The Bible bids us to come and pick up our cross and follow after him. So we learn God's idea about people again. We, We fall in love with people again. It's kind of funny, my mailman from high school, he comes through, I got a chance to talk to him. He, I went to school with him, and we got a chance to start talking again, and now he's on my heart. Isn't it funny how God will swoop into you, and people you didn't pray for before all of a sudden you get contact with them, and you shake their hand, and now you have a burden for them? It's so good. God wakes us up. Just like the Jonah, who shouldn't have been asleep, he should have been wide awake. And here this Hebrew man of God is asleep, going completely opposite direction where he's supposed to be. I think we need to get back into a place in church where we don't safely assume that we're in a good spot, but that with fear and trembling we come before the Lord and say, God, am I being disobedient to the call of God in my life towards you? We assume too much. We assume we're okay. Because if you want to look at all the boxes that we check, 
Jonah was right, wasn't he? Pretty much, unless you don't know the story. But if you know Jonah, Jonah was a man that was had character and he was a prophet. People looked to this man. So on the outside, Jonah looks like the ideal man of God. But they didn't know what was going on in that man's heart. And they didn't know the hatred that he had towards a people group. That whole nation, he would prefer God destroy and decimate the whole population over the mercy and compassion of God for those people. To obey God means that Steve Lapp has to disobey myself. How many like things your own way every once in a while? How many know God's ways are not our ways? And God's thoughts are not our thoughts. We just think that because we're Christians, we're automatically going to do the right thing. Well, I'm a believer. I've known the Lord for 25 years. Pooey on your 25 years. We need some fresh revelation that God is God and I am not. We need some fresh revelation that I don't have it figured out. We need some fresh revelation like Jonah, maybe we need a storm in our life and say, do you know why you're, the church is here? Is to seek and save that which is lost. Amen. If they don't look right, they don't act right, they talk bad, they look bad. So? And who put us in charge anyway? Folks, I love this pretty church. But this church doesn't do anything any good. The world doesn't care about fresh paint on the walls. They really don't. You know what the world cares about? The world cares about, will you love me? Will you do things for me? I have questions, you have answers. I'm dealing with life struggles. There's a huge place and a huge gap, I believe, often in the church and the disconnect we have with the world. Jacques Eol, I'll mess that up, he was a sociologist and lay leader in the Reformed Church of France during World War II. He says, for in the last resort, Jonah can refuse to admit his guilt. He can continue to outface God and say no. Do you know that? Jonah could have continued to say no there. God did not make Jonah say yes to him. Don't you ever forget that free moral choice that God gave you? There are no robots here. If he does, he knows what the results will be. The vessel will go down with all hands. This is our situation. If in the common danger suspended over the world, Christians shun their function, if Christians who have received inestimable grace refuse to take it to the world, then the rest, pagans, non-Christians, those who man the enterprises in which we are engaged, will perish. Christians have to realize that they hold in their hands the fate of their companions. Not my responsibility. I really am burdened for my neighbors. I think of them often. I, I pray for them often. And if you say, man, how do I do this? How do I get back into the lost mindset? How do I get into the mindset of Christ who actually had compassion on dying, crying humanity? How do we get to that? Do you know where I say you start ground one? Repent of your heart towards your fellow brothers and sisters. Ask God to forgive you because you've lacked a heart for these people. Jacques Yule says the story of Jonah, it's time for us to wake up. It's time for us to wake up. The story of Jonah carried particular significance for him, in fact. The collaborationist French government working with the Nazis had passed laws requiring Jews to identify themselves, which led to their eventual transportation to concentration camps. The question of whether he would continue like Jonah to comfortably slumber in the hold was a very real to Elu. A cultural storm had overtaken his nation which would have life and death consequences for his Jewish fellow citizens. Reflecting on how God treats Jonah, Elu wrote, 
He confronts Jonah with his responsibilities. He impales him on the horns of his dilemma. According to Scripture, this is often God's way with man. He forces on them the ineluctable choice. He does not manipulate him like a puppet. On the contrary, he appeals to the high point of his freedom to choose. But this is a choice of difficult alternatives. It's time for us to wake up. In the worst cultural storm, he chose to obey God in the midst of the Third Reich. Elu risked his life saving Jews from the gas chamber. So many of us in our places of, of space where we're at, we say, well, man, we don't have huge events going on. We don't have the Hitler stuff going on. But, folks, there's a whole lot of other cultural things that are going on. I know friends in ministry who are literally part of the whole getting people out of the whole sex traffic. Do you know now more than ever in history, there are more slaves in the world than there's ever been? The slave trade is huge. And we, the church, kind of sit back and kind of let it go. We have got to engage. His name's Dave Clinton, and him and his wife minister to these children to get these children out of the sex traffic. That's the real thing. And that's where we get out of the romance of the Bible. Isn't that a great verse? Jeremiah 33, 3. Aren't these promises just delicious? We talk about the real situations, and in church we do this, and we drum up people, and we say, we're going to get on adventures, and we're going to do these great adventures. And there was this one church that he was ministering to, and they were really pumping up this idea of going into Uganda, where they, these kids were actually soldiers in the war, and they were getting them back out. And they were advertising this missions trip for these young people as an adventure. And he said, I scratched my head when I heard the term adventure. I said, I wonder if these young kids over in Africa thought of them being in a, a war that they were forced to get into would call it an adventure. We're clueless in the church. We have separated ourselves. We have cleaned our hands of all the junk in life. And we say, well, I'm fine. And what Jesus did is he did the exact opposite. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We stand in there, and we stand in the gap, and we bring the light of Jesus, and we get our hands dirty, and we roll our sleeves up, and we say, we want to come for a dying people. Amen. Amen. And it will get uncomfortable. And we won't know all the answers to everything that go on. And I will tell you that as God bleeds his heart into you, because he gave you a new heart when you became a believer in Christ, that he will call you to do things that you don't want to do. Turn to someone who say, he's going to tell you to do some things you don't want to do. We think, we think that God is going to tell us and agree with us about where we're at. When God's whole goal is to disrupt our, our life that we're falling asleep at the wheel on, will God once again move in America? That's a good question. Will God move in America again? And I say yes, He will. Because God always has a remnant church. And that, that, that term remnant church gets kind of blown apart. I pray I'm part of the remnant church, right, Jim? We just pray it part. I, I hope I'm part of that remnant. But A.W. Tozer writes, Unbelief says this, and this is where I want our church to check ourselves. Unbelief says some other time, but not now. Some other place, but not here. Some other people, but not us. And faith says anything he did anywhere else, he will do here. Anything he did any other time, he's willing to do now. Anything he did for other people, he is willing to do for us. The world is waiting. See, unbelief says, well, God may do it. I hear these churches and Church leaders, their prayers and ideas, and I'm like, man, no wonder people fall asleep. You have no faith in what you're even praying. You might as well be praying off a script. You don't even mean what you're praying. God, sometime you may do something. Just thank you, God, for what you did a hundred years ago. I don't know. See, unbelief says sometime but not now. Somewhere but not here. And faith says whatever God has done, He is willing to do. Right here. 
And yet you chose to wrote all the greats of the faith in the last hundred years that we are clueless on. Mueller, Livingston, all these greats. One of those men, he had a heart for missions, and so he had a group of three or four people, and they prayed, and now it's the third largest missions organization in the world. All because a handful of people said, we need to evangelize the world. The other gentleman, I forgot his name, one of the most fantastic stories, the man who had the orphanage. What's his name again? He had the millions of dollars come through. But he had a heart for these orphan kids. And he just prayed and said, God, you're going to have to provide. And millions of dollars was dispersed. And he took care of all these kids because he had a heart for kids. Folks, if, if we don't have a heart for the world, how do we expect the world to be saved? If we don't have a heart for our neighbor... Forget about the kid in the Philippines. You need to get a heart for the kid across the street. Amen. I'm glad you're sending your money overseas. I'm glad you're doing all that. But get my heart with our local church and what we're doing in Rockford. If we're a city on a hill and the gates of hell should not prevail against it, then God has issued us as ambassadors for Christ to stand in the gap and be a light and to seek and save that which is the world is waiting. You don't have to turn there, but Acts 10.38 says, And Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. That was what Jesus did. Wouldn't it be neat if the church would do that? Do good. Pray for the sick. As he commissioned the disciples. And then the disciples after that. And after that, and as the church grew, they would meet together, have community, they would have worship, and they would be sent out, and they would go to places and do things. That's really, really neat. But we've become so entrenched into our idea of church that we don't even seek the lost anymore. Here's what we're called to do. We're called to feed. We're called to clothe. We're called to cook. We're called to scrub. We're called to clean. We're called to become peacemakers. We have a huge responsibility being the church, don't we? See, we think all the responsibilities on the world because they're the wrong ones. And I actually say more of the responsibility is on the church. We're the responsible ones. We're to be the ones seeking out and going after them, leaving the 99 to go after the one. Dyke Wilson wrote a letter to A.W. Tozer, and it was a plea to God's church. And I think it's very imperative we hear this. That God's church might serve, I'm sorry, God's church might serve God people, that we might serve the poor and the needy. Now he says this, Now brethren, let's fight to escape the trap. We are well fed, we're well dressed, we're respectable, we're cultured, and yet the very poor and afraid, are the very poor are afraid to enter our doors. We say we are going to where people are, and I suppose that's right, but I'd like to tell you, if it could be done and arranged, I wouldn't mind if half my congregation was another race than mine. I'd preach to Indians and Hispanics and Filipinos and blacks with the greatest delight. Yet we won't, but because our friends won't, they move in and they don't want integrated churches like this. So we're going to sell this one to them, bid them Godspeed and move out. But I hope the day will ever be when we are a typical urban church, birds singing in the bushes by our lovely church and the lawn stretching away, nobody of any color near us or any other tongue or language, and we will be the typical American Main Street Borgias Christians without any knowledge of the suffering and the groans of others. If I thought my church would ever fall into that trap, I'd rather offer my service as an assistant superintendent of a rescue mission and bathe the sores of bums off the street. I'm not fitted. I'm not trained. I don't run in that direction. I have a ministry that is wider than that, so I am not going to do it. But if I will say that if ever we settle down to a smooth, lovely suburban church, judging by the length of cars out front, I would take a job with a mission. I would lead a drunken woman up the street and sit her in the seat and preach the gospel to her. I'd rather do it. When I read that, I thought of how comfortable we become in the church and we look with disdain on people, with drug addiction. You know, we hear on the news and the media all this, all, all the addiction to prescription drug and all of that stuff happening. 
and it's destroying lives. And I don't know what to do. I don't have all the answers to all life's problems, and I'm not even going to say we have that. But I believe as God ministers to us and we understand what the spirit of this church is going to be, Matthew 4.19 gives us a beautiful promise. Jesus declares, come and follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. But if you're not interested in fishing for people, then that promise doesn't apply for you. You can go back, close your garage door, look out your front window and look at all the problems going on. As we follow Christ, we will learn how to fish for people. And we often think we know what people need. Mark Sayers writes, despite his step into leadership upon the boat, despite surrendering to the chaos of the storm and the sea monster, ultimately, despite his crying out to God in the belly of fish and repentance, Jonah was still carrying an agenda within, a set of expectations about how God should act. He had constructed a worldview of justice that was in contrast with God's. He still had an agenda. He still had an agenda. He repents, he goes into the belly of the whale. You think at that point Jonah would give up? Aren't we just a stubborn church folk? <laughs> And I believe where we're at today, and even the quietness in this small group here, I think it's very important for us to see, to see and say, God, what assumptions do I have? And what sense of justices do I have in this world and all the situations going on? God, have already, do I have an agenda going on with people in situations? Today is the day for the church to repent of assuming a role that God never gave to us. We are not God. Or king, here's what it is. We serve God, and he is the king. And we must be taught once again how to serve this generation and the deep needs that are present in this world. Folks, we do have answers for this world. And I want you to close your eyes for a moment. I want to read a verse of scripture to you in Ezekiel. I said, Lord, how can we finish out today? And I believe today is a great day for us to ask God and repent for our lack of compassion for our community, for our lack of compassion for the people around us, for our judgmental spirits, for our agendas, for our ideas of what we think God should be doing right now. With every head bowed and every eye closed, Ezekiel 36, 25 says something really profound as God was bringing his people back. He wasn't talking to a lost people. He was talking to his own people. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out of you your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Today, I would ask you, is there anything that is not of God's spirit we know the story of James and John, the sons of thunder. And they came to the town, and the town wasn't receptive to God. And they wanted to smite them. And Jesus turns to them and says, you don't even know what spirit you're of. I question my own spirit sometimes. And the ideas I have for God and how He can fix things. And I ask God even now in my own life, God, replace my heart of stone and stubbornness for your heart. And maybe today you're looking at people and situations, and I don't know who they are, 
But I pray God brands them in your brain. And you have a burden for them and you cry for them once again. And you speak to them with love. And you speak to them with compassion. And we have the Spirit of Christ that would say, I am seeking and saving that which was lost. You would serve people. You would die for people. And that this church would have people coming in who may not align with you or your ideas. Who may not think your thoughts. They may be confused. They may be dying in their own situations. And we gather around them and we show them the light of the gospel. I'm going to start with a prayer. And then maybe you want to offer a prayer. I don't know. But since we're the family of God, we can do this. I just simply want to give a repentance-style prayer from Ezekiel 36 that would say, God, forgive us of our stubborn hearts. Forgive us of our rebellion. And forgive us for our own worship of our own idols that we've created. Forgive us, God, for having a spirit like Jonah. And our sense of justice and our justice system that we have of how God should fix people and make things right. Forgive us, God, of our spirit and how we point the finger at people and point it down and talk down to people. And how we lack the time and the commitment to do the things that God has called us to do. Give us hearts of flesh, God. Give this church your heart. Lord, help us to be a people that are slow to speak and quick to listen. Forgive us of our prejudgments and our predeterminations of people. Teach us to pray, God, for the lost. Teach us to have a heart for the lost. Wake us up, God. For we're not concerned with previous generations, we're concerned right now with this generation. So we have. Forgive us, God, for thinking you align with political parties. And thinking the kings of the earth will solve our problems. to live at peace. Help us, Father, developing the fruit of the Spirit. Father, everything you did was in love. You died for us because you loved us. You lived for us because you loved us. Help Turning Point to be full of love and compassion. And when people see us out in workplace doing the hard things, and the things that anyone else is not noticing, God, I thank you that you notice. I thank you, God, that you notice the disjointed person and the son or daughter that had lacks a father. The orphan, the widow, I thank you, God, that you notice them. I thank you, God, that you notice the abused. I thank you, God, that you would anoint them and that you bless them in the middle of their dungeon and their trial. Help us, God, to put our arms around them and to speak healing over them. 
Help our eyes to be awakened again as we've been asleep in our boat. Waiting for you to fix everything. When God, you have given the keys to the church to do your work. Forgive us, God, for just sweeping it under the rug. Forgive us, God, for the heart like Jonah that is almost upset because people are not getting what they deserve when we ourselves are the greatest of sinners deserve death. Forgive us, God, for a heart of stone. Give us a heart of flesh. May we look past differences in skin colors. And our own assumptions. God, we say that you can do it again. Right here and right now. With this group of people. We don't have to wait for another time in another place or a more ideal place and a more ideal time. We, we think we need to have the conditions perfect. And God, I thank you that you don't need perfect conditions. I thank you, God, today that the conditions are right. That you declare this, that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So God, we declare that you start in our hearts. And replacing the heart of stone and giving us the heart of flesh. And may we be examples to the young people of how to serve this generation. And we thank you, God, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Folks, we, our time is now. Right now with the simplicity of all the moments that you're given in every day. You, you don't have to do some great thing out there. You just have to simply obey God. But just know this this week, leave with this, that to obey God means to disobey ourselves. And it might require us to do some things where we go, I didn't want to do that. I love you so much. But know this today, that you are the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. I love you so much. Have a good, good Sunday.